Hey, what's up seekers? Welcome back to part two on Freudian mysticism. Freud positioned himself as the shatterer of illusions, in the words of one of his students, as one who undertook to overthrow false gods, to rip the veils away from the mass of dishonesties and hypocrisies. This student was none other than Carl Gustav Jung, the same student who in his autobiography recalls a conversation he and Freud had in Vienna around 1910. I can still recall vividly how Freud said to me, My dear Jung, promise me never to abandon the sexual theory. That is the most essential thing of all. You see, we must make a dogma of it, an unshakable bulwark. In some astonishment I asked him, continues Freud, a bulwark against what? To which he replied, against the black tide of mud, and there he hesitated for a moment, then added, of occultism. Jung rightly observes that Freud's language of dogma and bulwark is alarming, for a dogma is an indisputable confession of faith, set up to suppress doubts once and for all, hardly the language employed for an ostensibly scientific enterprise, and the second word, bulwark, indicates Freud's desire to enlist Jung's aid in erecting a barrier against these threatening unconscious forces of occultism. Jung writes with a touch of humor, the impression this conversation made upon me added to my confusion. Until then, I had not considered sexuality as a precarious and imperiled concept to which one must remain faithful, or which, for that matter, needs to be propped up as a wall in the war of science against occultism. This contrived war between occultism and religion on the one hand, and science and reality on the other, shows up again in Freud's 1933 new introductory lectures on psychoanalysis, where he writes, it is hard for us to avoid a suspicion that one of the secret motives of the occultist movement is to come to the help of religion, threatened as it is by the advance of scientific thought. Namely, that religion in its losing battle against science had enlisted occultism in a final ditch effort to hang onto the supernatural in the mind of the modern person. Jason Josephson Storm in his 2017 The Myth of Disenchantment remarks that it would seem that the black tide of occultism is nothing less than a religious foray into the conflict between religion and science. The ghost of religion in the modern era, the last gasp of dying faiths clinging to the illusions, among them that our world reflects the human mind, that religious metaphysics is more than mere collective psychopathology. Freud, on this reading, saw himself as a warrior on the side of modernity and humanity, to scientifically liberate ourselves from religion, which, like a black tide, threatened to overwhelm the conscious mind. And the tool which Freud weaponized on the side of science against religion, occultism, mysticism, and illusion was sexuality, eros. Jung, in his own analysis of Freud, observes that Freud was emotionally involved in his sexual theory to an extraordinary degree. When he spoke of it, writes Jung, his tone became urgent, almost anxious, and all signs of his normally critical and skeptical manner vanished. Jung goes on so far as to say that Freud must have been so profoundly affected by the power of Eros that he actually wished to elevate it 
into a dogma area perennius, an immortal monument, like a religious numen, a divine power. For Freud, writes Jung, sexuality was something to be religiously observed. For Freud, sexuality, it seemed, included spirituality, which made Freud, in Jung's reading, a tragic figure, a great man in the grip of his daemon, who was working against himself, unaware that his monotony of interpretation, namely his need to explain everything through the lens of sexuality, that it expressed a flight away from himself, or from the other side of him which might perhaps be called mystical. This struggle in Jung's reading had taken on mythological proportions, a struggle between light and darkness, between the numinous light of Freud's sexual insight and the black tide of mud of mysticism and occultism, each threatening to extinguish the other. This theme of mysticism versus sexuality, religion versus science, Jung versus Freud, with mysticism and religion representing a detachment from and denial of the external world, and science and sexuality, in all of its numinosity, representing an attachment and fidelity to the reality of the world around us, is really a huge theme worth coming back to and discussing in this context of the fallout between Freud and Jung and in general. I thought I would just touch on it briefly here for good measure to whet your appetite. This dichotomy that we're depicting here in the mind of Freud, with the help of Jung's reflection, actually shows up quite explicitly in a letter which Freud wrote in January of 1930 to none other than Roman Rowland. In response to two volumes, Rowland had written on two important Hindu mystics, Ramakrishna and his chief disciple Vivekananda. Freud writes like this, We seem to diverge rather far in the role we assign to intuition. Your mystics rely on it to teach them how to solve the riddle of the universe while we scientists believe that it cannot reveal to us anything but primitive instinctual impulses and attitudes, highly valuable for an embryology of the soul when correctly interpreted, but worthless for orientation in the alien external world. Freud reaffirms his belief, which borders on the religious, that religious phenomena cannot tell us anything accurate about the external world around us while he concedes it may be highly valuable for an embryology of the soul when correctly interpreted, and by correctly interpreted we can safely assume that he means via a Freudian method of psychoanalysis. For the sake of comprehensiveness, and to shed some more light on the present analysis, it's worth mentioning the final few occasions which mysticism shows up explicitly in the mouth of Freud, alleged or actual. The first is actual. At the end of the 31st lecture in his 1933 New Introductory Lectures on Psychoanalysis, which we mentioned earlier, Freud, while summing up his tripart division of the psyche, the id, the ego, and the superego, writes like this. It is easy to imagine that certain mystical practices may succeed in upsetting the normal relations between the different regions of the mind, so that, for instance, perception may be able to grasp happenings in the depths of the ego and in the id which were otherwise inaccessible to it. It may safely be doubted, however, whether this road will lead us to the ultimate truths from which salvation is to be expected. Nevertheless, it may be admitted that the therapeutic efforts of psychoanalysis have chosen a similar line of approach. Its intention is indeed to strengthen the ego, 
to make it more independent of the superego to widen its field of perception and enlarge its organization so that it can appropriate fresh portions of the id. And here comes one of the most quoted lines in Freud's entire corpus, where the id was, their ego shall be. It is a work of culture, not unlike the draining of the Zuiderzi. This last comparison that Freud makes is to a huge 20th century project which saw the reclamation of some 1,500 square kilometers of habitable land from the Bay of the North Sea in the northwest of the Netherlands. What Freud seems to be doing here in Parsons' reading by making this analogy between this gargantuan land reclamation project and his own work of psychoanalysis is to extend this metaphor of ocean versus dry land, hearkening back to Rollins oceanic feeling, by which to say, unlike the mystics whose desire is to swim in the primitive black ocean of the unknown, namely the unconscious, with nothing but their twin oars of intuition and narcissism, we the scientists, with our tools of reason and power of analysis, will dam and drench the treacherous ocean, the unexplored regions of the unconscious mind, the id, which now seems dangerous and uninhabitable, like the ocean floor, lurking with unknown beasts and creatures in the depths. We shall, through the therapeutic efforts of psychoanalysis, of strengthening the ego, shine light on the ocean bed, turning it to dry, habitable land, enlarging the borders and frontiers of the known world, of the ego, to reclaim what was once the domain of the unknown, the realm of religion, myth, and mysticism, the occulted, literally the hidden, that which was formerly a hidden world to us, will become to us a revealed world, where the it was, there ego shall be. What was once unknown and unconscious shall be made known and conscious to us. This is the project, the enterprise of psychoanalysis, entirely constructed through the efforts of science, the true work of culture, the road which will lead us, in Freud's opinion, to ultimate truths from which salvation, no less, is to be expected. This contrasted imagery of ocean versus dry land, of land reclaimer versus ocean diver, the rationalist versus the mystic, shows up time and time again through Freud's and Rollins' correspondence. First, if you remember the very last line of the first chapter of Civilization and its discontents, in which Freud quotes Schiller, I am moved to exclaim in the words of Schiller's diver, let him rejoice who breathes up here in the rose-colored light. Then we have it again in the front page inscription of the copy of Civilization and its discontents, which Freud sent to Roland in the spring of 1931, signing the book from the Lantier to his great oceanic friend. Roland took note of this, and on the 3rd of May 1931, on the occasion of Freud's 75th birthday, sends him a well-wishing happy birthday letter in which he responds to Freud's inscription, writing that this binary opposition between the land dweller and the ocean dweller is illusory, not only between Freud and himself, but even within himself, within Roland, dwells the land dweller. I am also a lantier from the French countryside, from the core of old France, writes Roland. I am also an old Frenchman who is able to see through illusions, who is able to bear life without them, who no longer needs them. 
Roland, who saw himself as no less astute and critical than Freud, affirms his own rejection of illusion, the greatest illusion being the imaginary separation between rationalism and mysticism, between land-dweller and ocean-dweller. In our days, writes Roland in his 1930 book on Ramakrishna, an absurd separation has been made between these two halves of the soul, and it is presumed that they are incompatible. The only incompatibility lies in the narrowness of view which those who erroneously claim to be their representatives share in common. The amphibious Roland continues in his response to write of the endless letters that have come forth from all corners of the earth, like a gushing of waters that had been suppressed, he writes, in response to his books on the Hindu mystics, his oceanic works. These copious letters, which flooded his inbox, spoke to him of invisible forces that act in secret, not made manifest by exposure in broad daylight, the mystical seabed imprinted on the brow of thousands of earthly Europeans, who otherwise, for the most part, know nothing about any ocean. Roland urges Freud not to disregard this oceanic force in history and in action, warning him that it would be dangerous for the philosopher and the man of action to ignore them. This contrasted imagery of land and ocean person that runs playfully throughout their correspondence is actually a motif, a binary distinction, native to many a mystical tradition. In the Jewish mystical tradition, the Kabbalists, for example, distinguish between the hidden world and the revealed or manifest world, the Alma de Escasia and the Alma de Escalia, the former which they associate symbolically with the ocean, which conceals that which lurks beneath its surface, and the latter with dry land, in which all that is to be seen is apparent and illuminated by the light of day. This paired motif is a source for much mystical speculation at the hands of the Kabbalists in their discussion, for example, of the biblical account of the splitting and crossing of the Red Sea by the children of Israel, led by Moses out of Egypt, as told in Exodus chapter 14, particularly the biblical descriptions in verses 22 and 29 there, which describe the children of Israel walking on dry land in the midst of the sea. With the Kabbalists expanding on this confluence of opposites, this coincidente oppositorum, the Nosah HaFachim, of dry land in the midst of sea, B'Soi Chayom Be'Abasha, an allusion in their reading to the non-duality of concealment and revelation, exile and redemption, samsara and nirvana, if you will. For in the deepest depths of the dank, dark hiddenness lies the purest, unadulterated, glowing light of salvation and redemption. Like the flintstone which holds the spark of fire, deeper and truer, than the visible but easily extinguished coal or flame, the true presence of absence in the absence of presence. We'll stop there and get back to Freud before we get carried away by the paradoxes of mysticism. I just want to show you that this distinction between the land and ocean representing these two realms of the known and the unknown and the interplay between them and perhaps the non-duality of them shows up in the mystics' traditions themselves. Freud, in his relationship to Roland, just to sum up, is quite clearly wanting to position himself as the dry rationalist, with two feet standing firmly on solid ground of science, attempting to siphon the murky waters of the unconscious, reclaiming land for civilized humanity, enlarging the organization of the ego or appropriating portions of the id, as he puts it. 
Whereas Roland in Freud's depiction, in his quest for meaning and not just facts, is diving into the deep, moist, gushy depths of the human psyche, swimming in the mysteries of the universe without, in Freud's opinion, being able to bring back these insights to humanity to help us make real sense of the scary, chaotic world out there and to orient us in the whims and waves of fate. Your mystics rely on intuition to teach them how to solve the riddle of the universe, writes Freud. We scientists, however, to repeat, believe that it cannot reveal to us anything but primitive instinctual impulses and attitudes, highly valuable for an embryology of the soul, but worthless for orientation in the alien external world. This foray into Freud's and Rollins' odd friendship and correspondence, tracing the letters that dance between them, gives us a unique perspective on each of these great men. Reading Freud's letters sometimes feels like listening to a beautiful song of friendship written by a man proud to be tone-deaf, to quote Defresne. And Rollins' letters back show a man trying to convey time and again with really his life as a whole, that one could be a mystic and remain, not despite it, but because of it, an intellectual, a social prophet, and a cultural critic, to quote Kripal. The two only ever physically met once, but it would be decades later until the two would participate in a meeting of the minds. Some say they're still trying. There is one more alleged occasion where Freud spoke of mysticism, as documented by William Parsons in an exchange which he calls the Goethe's Letters. Parsons is inclined to believe that the account is authentic. I am no scholar of Freud, but to me it seems to be a little dubious. I'll give you the background and share with you the quote, and you can make of it what you will. The story goes that an obscure French poet by the name of Bruno Goetz, while still a student in Vienna in 1904 and 5, went to visit Freud. Some years later, Goetz published the transcript of his encounter with Freud, according to him verbatim, although in fragmentary form, to counteract the biased, reductive, and overly intellectual perception of Freud to present him instead as a man with far greater breadth, richness, and complexity. In one of his visits to Freud, Goetz spoke of a lecture he had attended by the Sanskrit scholar Leopold von Schroeder, who had turned Goetz onto the reading of the Bhagavad Gita. Upon hearing this, Freud, recounts Goetz, sprang up to his feet, began to pace and say, Take care, young man, take care. Keep that cool head, which fortunately you still have. Don't be taken off your guard. A clear, sparkling intellect is one of the greatest gifts. The poet of the Bhagavad Gita would be the first to affirm that very thing. Always be on the lookout. Always keep your eyes open, always be aware, always be of unswerving courage, never let yourself be dazzled. The Bhagavad Gita is a great and profound poem with awful depths, and still it lay beneath me, hidden deep in purple darkness there, says Schiller's diver, who never returns from his second brave attempt. If, however, without the aid of a clear intellect, we become immersed in the world of the Bhagavad Gita, where nothing seems constant, and where everything melts into everything else, then you are suddenly confronted by nothingness. Do you know what it means to be confronted by nothingness? Do you know what that means? And yet, this very nothingness is simply a European misconception. The Hindu nirvana is not nothingness. 
It is that which transcends all contradictions. It is not, as Europeans commonly take it, to be a sensual enjoyment, but the ultimate in superhuman understanding, an ice-cold, all-comprehending, yet scarcely comprehensible insight, or, if misunderstood, it is madness. What do these Europeans would-be mystics know about the profundity of the East? They rave on, but they know nothing. And then they are surprised when they lose their heads and are not infrequently driven mad by it, literally driven out of their minds. So Goethe recounts this magnificent rant from Freud about mysticism, the Bhagavad Gita, the nothingness of Nirvana. It's really a highly fascinating account, whether it has any relation to the historical Freud or is just a figment of Goethe's creative imagination is a good question. I'll leave that up to you to decide. As we've seen, Freud's relationship to mysticism was a complex one. A clear understanding of it still remains hidden beneath murky waters. At the very least, we've been able to examine the tips of the icebergs which jut beyond the surface. Freud, despite his ardent protestations against the mystical, found his own groundbreaking methods dismissed by critics as an evil method proceeding from mystical tendencies and full of dangers to the medical profession. An accusation which Freud must have found distressing, and yet, in a letter to one of his closest colleagues, a key player in the early psychoanalytical movement, Sandor Ferenczi, Freud seems to give his blessing for an exploration of mysticism and occultism, writing to Ferenczi about a request he had received from Jung, saying, We must conquer the field of occultism, and asks for my agreeing to his leading a crusade into the field of mysticism, to which Freud responds, I can see that you two are not to be held back. At least go forward in collaboration with each other. It is a dangerous expedition, and I cannot accompany you. While certainly still apprehensive and giving his blessing only reluctantly, this seems quite far from the Freud we saw earlier warring like a doomsday prophet against the black tide of occultism. There seems to be something complex and duplicitous going on here, which is not surprising given the complex figure that Freud was. Jason Joseph of Storm in The Myth of Disenchantment nuances the inherited image we have of the rational scientific Freud with ample documentation of Freud's forays himself into the paranormal, parapsychological, and the occult, and William Parsons in The Enigma of the Oceanic Feeling argues that there are two mysticisms in fact present in Freud's own writings, one which he rejects as infantile and narcissistic, but the other which he is more open to suspend his disbelief towards and entertain its possibility. I recommend checking out both of those learned discussions if you're interested in the subject. The details, of course, as usual, will be in the video description. But I would like to conclude this brief summary on a slightly different note. One of Freud's closest friends and later biographers, Ernest Jones, recounts meetings that he had with Freud before World War I in which the subject of occultism and kindred topics came up. Jones tells how, particularly after the hour got late, after midnight, Freud would regale me with strange or uncanny experiences with patients, characteristically about misfortunes or deaths, supervening many years after a wish or prediction. And Jones notes that Freud had a particular relish for such stories and was evidently impressed by their more mysterious aspects. Jones, 
Surprised at Freud for allowing himself to get carried away with these spooky stories and tall tales, asked how a man of his stature could entertain such things. Freud, writes Jones, would reply with his favorite quote, borrowing from Shakespeare's Hamlet, there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your philosophy. Freud, some two decades later in his 1933 new introductory lectures on psychoanalysis, would enshrine this private nocturnal Shakespearean comment in the published light of day, writing, mysticism, occultism, what is meant by these words? They refer to some sort of other world lying beyond the bright world governed by inexorable laws which science has constructed for us. Occultism asserts that there are in fact more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in our philosophy. Well, we need not feel bound by the narrow-mindedness of academic philosophy. We are ready to believe what is shown to us to deserve belief. I think many self-professing rationalists and scientifically-minded people today would like to hold up Freud as one of their own, not so much on account of his now unscientific theories of the human mind, but more on account of his rational assault on religion. Freud himself, while a fervent critic of religion no doubt, may not have been as modern as some would have liked him to have been, upholding the possibility that there are more things in heaven and earth than we would like to believe, and holding space to be persuaded of that which proved to deserve belief, even if the scientific model of his day hadn't yet the space for it. It is no doubt that this capacity to think beyond the given boundaries of the accepted scientific paradigm of his day is what ends up making Freud a thinker so beyond his time, and it is precisely this intellectual curiosity and openness, coupled with his abhorrence of religion and genuine skepticism towards the mystical, that makes the study of Freud and mysticism to be such a rewarding one. A few short weeks before Freud would eventually voluntarily end his life with a lethal dose of morphine, ending years of suffering from his painful, cancerous jaw, Freud scribbled down the following words on a note, which, according to some historians, was the very last thing which Freud ever wrote. These were his final enigmatic words. Mysticism, the obscure self-perception of the realm outside the ego, the id. Maybe these last words of his, written down during his last dying days, his final thoughts on this green earth, is the closest thing we get to a psychoanalytic theory of mysticism, the seeds of something to blossom yet. In our exploration of Freud and his relationship to mysticism, we discovered a Freud who was ambivalent, skeptical yet open-minded, who, far from dismissing mysticism outright, oscillated instead between an ill-informed dismissive reductionism and a more open appreciation of mystics as intuitive psychologists, whose aesthetic and artistic utterances, properly interpreted, might lead to new forms of psychological knowledge. The question just is, does psychoanalysis following Freud in the generations of students and analysts to come move beyond Freud's reductionism in an attempt to grapple meaningfully with the therapeutic and transformational potentials of mysticism? Or does it stay stuck in the past in 
old oppositional binaries between rationalism and mysticism, science and religion, land and ocean? Or do they learn to traverse both together, to cross the heart of the ocean on dry land, on fertile ground? Does psychoanalysis have the capacity to take seriously these deepest experiences of harmony, peace and wholeness, the yearnings of the human for unity, love and acceptance, without ridiculing or pathologizing them? Can psychoanalysis, to quote Stephen Frush, find a space for a non-reductive understanding of the religious, mystical impulse that can appreciate it as a way of engaging with reality and not just fleeing from its hurts? For that, we'd have to open up a new chapter, not on Freudian mysticism, but psychoanalysis and mysticism, all in good time. Until then, thank you for joining us, and thank you to our patrons for supporting this project if you would like to, and can afford to support this scholarly exploration of mysticism for free for the public, please do consider doing so. Till next time, thank you for joining us, and keep seeking.